Can you imagine uh, reading your own obituary? Can you imagine hating it? Can you imagine hating the newspaper's assessment of your life? Alfred Nobel was a Swedish chemist. He made a fortune inventing and producing explosives. In 1888, his brother Ludwig died, and the editor got the brothers mixed up, and he thought Alfred had died, and he printed Alfred's obituary. The title of the obituary was, The Merchant of Death is Dead. He was aghast, Alfred Nobel was aghast, uh, at the legacy by which he would be remembered, but he had one strategic advantage. Uh, he knew that legacy before he was in the ground. So he set out to change the legacy that he would be remembered by. Most of you know what he did. He donated $9 million to be set aside as prizes for people who most helped the advancement of mankind. You know what they are, right? The Nobel Prizes. Uh, so Alfred was successful in changing his earthly legacy. So I just want to stop and ask you, what will your obituary have to say about the way you've lived your life? In his book, um, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn, and if you've not read this book, I really want you to read this book. Uh, it will probably rock some of your worlds to read this book. But in this book, he challenges uh, people to write their own obituary. He says, just assume that you're a, a bystander, a disinterested third party, and someone's going to write your obituary. He actually says, sit down and write it. Sit down and write what the world sees. Sit down and write it. See how you think about it. But then he says, write it again. This is most important. He says, write it again. This time from heaven's perspective. This time from the perspective of, and he uses the word which I love, the audience of one. From the perspective of the audience of one, which of course is, is God. No doubt that uh, if we're all honest with ourselves, every one of us in this room have some work to do with respect to how God might assess our life on, on the planet. Alcorn makes the point that immediately after death, every human being will know how he should have lived. But oh wait, the Christian already knows how he should live. God has told us how we should live in His Word. God has told us so the question is, are you living that way? Are you living by the Word of God? Are you living the way that your Father has commanded for you to live for these few moments that we have on the planet? You remember the sermon series we did um, on heaven? You may remember one of the primary assertions that we made, biblical assertions we made in that series was that through our obedience and stewardship, we are actually filling out the scope, dimensions, parameters, and proportions of our own eternity. Now, if we go and study the parable of the minas over in Luke 19 and the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, this correlation between 
uh, our earthly faithfulness to our stewardship before God and how that fills out the dimensions of our own eternity it's made. That correlation is made very clearly. And you can go study that for yourself. But as we discussed in the Heaven series, God means for you to be jazzed about heaven and He means for you to be jazzed about it in the way you live every single day. Believing that God is serious about disproportionately rewarding you forever for your stewardship here. God means for His sons and daughters to take Him at His word, to take Him seriously, and to live every single day like it matters for the glory of Jesus. To be jazzed about heaven. Of course, I say it to you all the time. <laughs> if you go read Hebrews 11, those men and women, they believed God's promises. And they acted, they acted upon them. As God has told us to be faithful in the very little things, in a word, build an obituary that's pleasing to the audience of one. He says if we are faithful in the very little things, He will reward our socks off forever. That's what God says. So it matters every day. When you get up, it matters. We talked about it a few... Well, was it last week? We're vapors upon the earth. It matters. It matters. Every single day. Let me ask you, do you really believe that? The more important question is, do you really live that? Alfred Nobel managed to change his legacy in this world. But you and I have a far more important opportunity, and that's to change our legacy in the next to change our legacy in the next. In his early 20s, uh, the 18th century American theologian Jonathan Edwards, he penned 60 or 70 resolutions by which he built his life. He, he built his life around these resolutions. I'm just going to share three of them with you. I've shared them before, but I think they're very powerful. I've always loved number 6, number 17, and number 22. Number 6, Edwards says, Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. It matters every day when you wake up matters every day when you wake up. Number 17, resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 22, resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world, he's talking about heaven, as I possibly can with as much power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence, I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Edwards understood what we talked about last week. Remember what we talked about? Carpe diem. Carpe what? Carpe vapor. Seize your vapor. Live with all your might every single day when you get up. Edwards understood that uh, he, he, he lived every day ready to die. Let me ask you, Christian, are you ready to, are you ready to stand in front, of the, uh, in front of the Father right now and give an account? Are you ready to give an account today? Edwards lived every day ready to die. And he built his life around God's promises of eternal reward. He believed it and he built his life around it. And you could see it in how he lived. Let me challenge you, Christian. Are you doing the same? Are you doing the same? So in our text tonight, James is continuing to do what every good preacher does. He's addressing both the wheat and the tares in his congregation. The wheat, of course, are those who are Christians who just need to continue on in their sanctification. So tonight as we look at these passages about the wicked rich, that's hard to say, 
wicked rich because you want to say wicked witch. But I've been working on that all week. Uh, so James, is, he's talking to the, to, to, the, uh, to the wheat here, the Christians who just need to continue on, but he's also talking to the tares, those who profess to be Christians but are merely playing religion with God. And that's primarily who he's talking to. But there's a lot here for us to learn as Christians as well. So while James is primary, primarily addressing the lost, uh, there's a warning here for each of us and how we handle our money, wealth, and possessions. I hope you have your Bible open to James chapter 5. Um, James chapter 5. I was sharing with Adam this week. In my mind, I could be wrong, I have no hard data on this, but I have little or no doubt that, the modern West, that modern Western Christianity is the most materialistic era in the history of the church. You might have better data. But I don't have much doubt that the Christian church, at least in the West, the modern Christian church, it's as materialistic as it has ever been. There are more professed Christians disobeying God in their money right now than any other time in the history of the church. In fact, this is documented in America. Some of you have heard of George Barna. Uh, he's a famous pollster and researcher in America. This is what he discovered about those who profess to be Christians. And it's rather shocking, but this is what he discovered about the giving habits of those who call themselves Christians. He says, only 7% of those who claim to be born again give at least a tithe to the church. The amount of gross income given to the church from your average family unit is a paltry 3.8%. 18% of professed born-again adults give no money to the church at all. We talked about this some time ago. Uh, I shared with you my testimony on giving uh, and how I, was, how I just crashed into Malachi chapter 3 about... You know that great text where it says, Will a man rob God? Yes, of course he will. And most of the people in the church are, apparently, in America. According to George Barna. Um, yeah, and as you know, sadly, there's even something preached called the prosperity gospel. There are, pros there are professed Christians overtly trying to manipulate God and use Him as a slot machine uh, for a temporal gain. Of course, if we read our Bibles, we understand that's a false gospel taught by false teachers. But I've always loved what John MacArthur says about that. He says, The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel swallows up the beauty of Christ in the beauty of His gifts, and it turns those gifts into idols. The world is not impressed when Christians get rich and say, Thank you, God. The world is impressed when Christians get rich and gladly give it away for the glory of Christ. That's when Christ is honored. And of course, if we read our New Testament, we understand that that's basically what Jesus has called us to do as His followers. So our text tonight, God is talking strong to, strong to us. He's, he's talking hard to the unbeliever, but He's also warning the believer. Make sure you're living in accordance with My commands when it comes to your money and your wealth and your possessions. So God's talking hard to us tonight. He's talking hard to us about our practices with money. God is addressing the rich. Did you hear it? Come now, you rich. Okay, I'm going to stop there just for a minute. When you think of rich, what do you think of? 
Bill Gates, Berlusconi, um, the Google Boys, a Saudi Sheik. But you know what? Every one of us in this room are rich. Um, the statistics are, if you make more than 10,000 U.S. dollars or 7,000 euros a year, you make more than 85% of the world. If you make $37,000 U.S. dollars a year or 26,000 euros, you make more than 95% of the world. There are people in the world who could never dream of making what some of us make in one month. Making in a year what some of us make in one month. So I'm just, all I'm trying to do is put this into context. In a global context, we are fantastically wealthy. Now, I understand about cost of living. I understand about all that. But also we need to look at our standard of living compared to most of the rest of the world. We actually live like kings. Most of us. Most of us do. So I just want to plant that seed with you as we talk about who's rich and who's not. I love what John, John MacArthur says about this. He says, if you have discretionary funds, you're rich. That's the definition, the biblical definition. If you have discretionary funds over and above the needs of your family, you're rich. That's it. So I think most of us probably in this room uh, fall into that category, maybe apart from some of the, the young students. I'm just going to reread the whole text, okay, so we can just get the flow of it. I want you to hear what God says to the wicked rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Wow. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who, who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. I just thought it would be good to take this opportunity because I know I'm by and large speaking mostly to Christians. Now I'm sure there are probably a couple of people in here who have never truly come to Christ. I'm sure that's the truth. And you need to hear what God's saying to you about how you're using your money. But I, I'm, I know that the majority of you are Christians and I'm, so I'm going to take this opportunity to just talk about money in general. I just want to make four points about the biblical principles that, that we learn from Scripture regarding money. One, everything belongs to God. All wealth is God's. We talked about this last week, I think. Psalm 50, 12, For the world is mine, the Lord says, and everything in it, it's God's. Number two, money is amoral. It's morally neutral. It's not wrong to have money. It's wrong to love money. It's wrong to hoard money. It's wrong to extravagantly spend money on ourselves. It's not wrong to have money. This is the teaching of the Bible. Thirdly, God has given us the ability to acquire and the right to possess wealth. 
Deuteronomy 8.18, The Lord your God has given you power to make wealth. Four, the biblical principle for gaining money is to what? Buy a lottery ticket? That's wrong. To what? What is the Christian called to do? To work, right? To work. And, and to uh, provide for his family. 1 Timothy 5.8 If anyone does not provide for his household, he is worse than an unbeliever. And, and if an able-bodied person will not work, what does God say to that person? Let him not eat. So these are just some, some, some fundamental biblical principles about money. Everything belongs to God and you are accountable to everything He gives you. You will give an account to the Father. You will give an account. Of everything that He's given you, you will give an account. And I will give an account. Paul says it perfectly, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For what do you have that you have not received? It's from God. It is from God. So the Christian understands that when it comes to money, wealth, and possessions, he's merely a, a steward of God's money, God's wealth, and God's possessions. It's God's. It's not ours. It's God's. We are merely stewards of it. A steward is someone simply who manages the property of another. That's what we are. We're managing God's property. And he's laid down uh, his commands on how we are supposed to manage that property. All men will stand before God and give an account. I heard one preacher say, if you manage your employer's money like you do the money God gives you, would you still be employed? Would you still be employed? The Bible says preeminently, primarily two things about what the Christian is to do with his money. Really, that's it. There are some other smaller issues. But really two things. I know you could guess what they are. I've already told you, or alluded to both of them. We're to meet the needs of our family, which that's probably ten sermons right there. What does it mean, needs? But we're to meet the needs of our family. That's what we're commanded to do. We know we're commanded to pay our taxes, and I kind of I put that into uh, that heading, to meet the needs of our family and pay our taxes. God commands that of His children. You know what else God commands? You know what? You, there's only one other thing God tells us to do with our money. Give it to be open-handed with it, to be radically open-handed with it. Two things. Now, you, you have to wonder, how, do, how could we ever mess that up? There's only one way to mess that up. We're, we're either listening too much to the world and not enough to God. We're listening too much to the world and not enough to God to mess that up. It's so simple. Okay, God says, I want my people to, to live this way. I want them to provide for their family. And I want them to give. But the world says two other things. You already know what they are, right? The world says, spend everything you got on yourself. Get something shinier, something newer, something cooler. Get that. And also, oh, the other thing you need to do is hoard up a ton of cash. You need to get a big pile. Just make it as big as you can. You need to just have a huge portfolio for yourself. This is what the two things that the world tells us about our money. We need to spend it and we need to hoard it diametrically opposed to what God says. Diametrically opposed. Unfortunately, many who call themselves Christians are indistinguishable from the world in this regard. And this is what James is indicating uh, regarding the wicked rich. 
He says they're buying and they're hoarding. So I want to challenge you right now, Christian. <laughs> Are you living by God's commands or have you conformed to the world? Are you providing for the needs of your family and giving radically to God's church and God's work and to the poor? Or are, have you succumbed to the ways of the world and are you spending extravagantly on yourself and building a huge portfolio? I think this text, God means for us to examine ourselves as Christians, to examine ourselves as He condemns the wicked rich. What does James say about those who do not acknowledge God's ownership of all things? What does he say about those who do not acknowledge that God has given us the ability to make and possess wealth? What does God say about those who do not function as good stewards? James says, howl and weep, your misery is coming. Yes, this is a strong text, but I'm just going to preach it strong. <laughs> I'm just going to preach the text. This is what James says, you might as well start weeping now. Your judgment is sure. You have disregarded me. You have disregarded my word. Your judgment is coming and it is sure. You might as well start weeping and wailing now. God says. And James is merely echoing his half-brother. Now, who's his half-brother? Who's the half-brother of James? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Okay. Jesus Christ. You know, that's, you know the strongest warning in the New Testament? I think I've taught you this before. The strongest warning in the New Testament is not about devils and demons and adultery and murder and false doctrine. You know what it's about? It's about your money. Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, beware. That's the only place in the New Testament where that Greek word is used. It's one of the strongest Greek words that ever came off the lips of Jesus. Jesus says, beware. Remember what He said? Beware of what? Every, every form of greed is what Jesus said. Another Greek translation is, watch out, get back from every form of greed. You know, we talked about this parable last week. The, the rich guy over in Luke chapter 12 and he had a bumper crop, man. God just blessed this man. And you remember this guy just went off on this orgy of personal pronouns. He said, man, it's all mine. What am I going to do with this? And he started, and what did he decide to do? He had all this wealth. What did he decide to do? Did he decide to just provide for the needs of his family and give the rest of it away? No, what did he decide to do? He decided to hoard it. And what did God say? God says, you're a fool for tonight. I require your soul. Friends, there's a strong lesson here for us. For, the, for those of us who are hoarding up money, and I know Wall Street tells us that we've got to hoard up tons of money for a, a, a plethora of reasons. But what I'm challenging you to do tonight is to hear what God says. Turn a deaf ear to the world and listen to what God says. It's always a challenge for each one of us. But this guy decides to hoard it. God calls him a fool. I'm just going to turn over... Uh, and read to you real quick. Jesus says the same thing over in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, uh, 19 to 21. This is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21, verse 24. Jesus says, hear me, hear me, Christian. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon the earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, where will your, where, what will be where your treasure is? There will your heart be also. Do you see why this is so important to God? Is He your treasure? Or is it cash? And possessions? And lands? And wealth? And portfolios? And then Jesus drops down here in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There is a reason that 16 of Christ's 38 parables speak about money. There's a reason that Jesus spoke more about money and wealth than He did about heaven and hell combined. There's a reason that there are 2,000 references to money and wealth throughout the Scripture. There's a reason because it has a way of getting into the human heart. It has a way of becoming a God. There's something about money we, we tend to want to love it and trust it more than we love and trust God. We tend to pursue it and serve it more than we pursue and serve God. I want to I say this and I want you to hear me. When it comes to money, the ultimate issue in the Bible, it's about God. Your view of your money says everything that needs to be said about your view of God. That's really what's at stake here. And this is why God gives so much ink to money and wealth and possessions. Your priorities with your money is a reflection of how you view God. Your anxiety about financial security is a reflection of how you view God. Your practice in giving your money is a reflection of how you view God. Nothing less than that is at stake. And this is one reason... Uh, James is landing on this, these wicked rich like a, a sumo wrestler. He says, your judgment is sure. You have disregarded uh, your benevolent Creator and you have spent lavishly on yourselves. And your day of accounting is coming. He says, you might as well start weeping and wailing now. Paul is, you know, Paul talks about this to 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 6.10. He says, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many a pang. And this is part of who James is addressing in the text, the tares in his congregation, those who profess to love Christ, but they really love their money. They're in the church, they orbit the church, and, and they profess to, to know Christ and to love Him, but they really love and serve their portfolio and their money when it comes down to it. You can see it in their deeds. You can see it in their checkbook. You can see it on their visa statement. It's really more about the world than it is about, about God. It's that thorny soil that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower. You guys remember that text, Matthew 13, 22? You remember the guy? He looked like a Christian, man. Looked like it was, you know, he looked good for a while. But then the text says, the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the word and it became unfruitful. Someone who has wandered away from the faith. 
Now this is graphic language here. You rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is the last days that you have stored up. This is, this, this is graphic language. There's no question in any commentator's mind and I think it's probably obvious to you as well. Just a simple cursory reading of the text. This is a reference to judgment. This is a reference to hell. I know talking about hell is uh, politically incorrect and I know that much of the modern church has pretty much expunged it from, from preaching but when it's in the text we'll preach it. Uh, you know there's more from from the lips of Jesus about hell than from any other source in Scripture. Jesus talked proficiently or profusely, I should say, about the reality, the horrible reality of hell. This James text is really reiterating what Jesus said over in John 15. Let me just read to you. You remember this great text? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Every branch that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser, that's the Father, takes them away and it's thrown away as a branch, and they gather them, and they cast them into the fire. Some of you, I don't think any of you were here when we were in the Gospel of John many years ago, or many, uh, many Sundays ago. But that's the Judas branch. You know, the branch that pretends to be a Christian, but he bears no spiritual fruit. God says, I'm going to whack off that branch, and I'm going to throw it in the fire. This is what uh, James is alluding to when he talks about the wicked rich that is that have infiltrated the church. James is calling out these, these false disciples. He's a faithful preacher. He says, man, your judgment is coming. Your judgment is sure. Look at that word there in verse 1. He says, your miseries are coming. Man, you'll do a word study on the Greek there, the word translated miseries. Wow, that'll sober you up. That is a strong, strong word. James is calling out the false Disciple. And he kind of paints a word picture here in verse 3. It's like, it's like the unbelievers in the courtroom of God. And who's going to testify against the unbeliever in the courtroom of God? The moth-eaten garments, the personified, uh, accumulated and hoarded wealth, will give testimony. The gold and silver that has rusted, they'll say, yes, we were extravagantly spent these personified articles and the rusted gold and silver say, yes, we were, we were hoarded unreasonably. I like this word picture. I think it's powerful. The, the wicked rich, their own wealth will give testimony against them in the courtroom of God. I love the message paraphrase here. It's very graphic. It says, you thought you were piling up wealth? Well, listen, you really piled up judgment. You didn't pile up wealth in fact, you piled up judgment. And James is aghast. He's aghast. He, he can't, for one thing, he can't believe they've done this. But for another thing, he says, man, you've done this in the last days. Jesus is coming quickly. Revelation chapter, what, 21? Or, is that right? I don't know. 22. You haven't believed a thing, Jesus says. You've given no care to redemptive history. Jesus says, I'm coming back quickly and I'm going to render unto each man according to his deeds. You've shown no regard. You've shown no regard. 
not only for, for the, the, the Word of God, but for the redemptive history and the, the return of the Lord Jesus. You've shown no regard. Not only have you hoarded, you've done it in the last days. It's like He's saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe you would be so stupid. It's basically what James is saying to these wicked, wicked, rich. Verse 4, and he says, he says, man, you love money so much you actually engaged in fraud. And he said, these, these wages will be personified. They will be personified in the courtroom of God and they will testify against you. And the outcry of the ones you have defrauded, it has reached the ears of God. <laughs> I think we talked about it last week. Everything is open and laid bare to the living God. You know, I can fool you, and you can fool me, and you can even fool yourself. But there's one being in the universe you can't fool. God knows exactly how you are living and with your money and what you're doing with it. God knows. God knows. And there will be an accounting. There will be an accounting. I couldn't help but think of uh, Galatians 6, 7, which happens to be in the context of money, which I didn't really know for a long, long time. Finally figured that out. You know that great text in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. This is what James is saying to the wicked rich. And I am challenging you, Christian, and I am warning you, Christian, not to be flippant about this matter. This matters to God. This is a big deal with God because it's all about Him. <laughs> it's all about Him. It's not about anything less than that. How you, how you view your money, how you spend your money, how you give your money, it's all related to how you see God. I hope I, hope I convince you of that. That is a biblical, biblical truth. Verse 5, uh, he says, In your prosperity you've not honored me. You've disregarded my commandments. You've, become, you, you've not been a conduit of blessing. You know, we're just supposed to hook up to a fire hydrant and be a fire hose, and God's just supposed to flush resources through us into the church and into the world for the salvation of souls and for the poor. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a conduit. But God says, hey, you've become a reservoir and you've spent it on yourself. You've lived luxurious and in wanton pleasure. You've fatted yourself in the day of judgment. I told you it was a strong text, didn't I? This is what James is saying. In verse 6, just quickly, you've condemned, you have condemned and put to death a righteous man. I, this is a tough verse, uh, but most... Many commentators that I trust, they, they believe this is a reference to, to the rich dragging the poor into court and taking what little they did have. Economic murder, so to speak. That's what verse 6 is referring to. So C.S. Lewis said something that I've shared with you before. He says, if you're doing your sums wrong, he says you'll get the wrong answer. And I dare say some of us in here might be doing our sums wrong when it comes to how we're handling our money that God has entrusted to us. But C.S. Lewis goes on to say, when you discover that you're doing your sums wrong, the best thing to do is what? Stop doing them wrong. And what? Oh, do them right. In accordance with the Word of God. Alfred Nobel had the opportunity to change his legacy in the world. 
And some of us in here have an opportunity to change our legacy in the next. If we're not right now living in accordance with the Word of God with respect to our money, you can change all that. You can begin to build an obituary that will be pleasing to the audience of one. You can start right now. That's exciting to me. You can start right now. So I have three invitations. If you, if, uh, tonight, if, if you're here and you've never genuinely come to Christ, I, I invite you to come and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And if you don't know what that means, please come and talk to me. The second invitation I, have, I, I gave last week, if uh, you've been in the church and you've made profession of faith, but you've never really submitted your life to Jesus Christ as, as, as uh, your Lord and Savior, then I challenge you to repent and come to Christ, genuinely come to Christ. We talked about it last week. You know, that's, that's practical atheism, right? Practical atheism if you don't submit your life to the Lordship of Christ. Theoretical theism. And lastly, Christian, I just want to challenge you to examine how you are spending, saving, and giving your money. I told Adam this week, man, it's something I have to do all the time. I never just get, I never just get in a place and say, I'm in the right place. I'm never in the right place. I can always do more. And I should always do more because there's blessing in it. God's promise is in it. We are, Alcorn says it, we are fools. If we don't act on the promises of God with respect to how we honor Him in our finances. We are to be bullish on the kingdom and we are to invest heavily in it. If you haven't read Alcorn's book, I dare you to read it. And I dare you to get on that path of joy and blessing. I dare you. Come talk to me. I'll, tell you my, I'll give you my testimony. This is a book that every Christian should read. Every Christian should read this. It's awesome. Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. And here's what I want you to hear. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Let's pray together. Father, what an awesome passage and what a strong word that we've heard from you tonight. Thank you for the challenge, Father. Thank you that you don't let us sit down and get lazy and do stupid things. Thank you, Father, that you always challenge us and encourage us and exhort us to live by Your Word because in Your Word is freedom and in Your Word is joy and in Your Word is life and in Your Word is blessing and in Your Word is reward. Oh Lord, I pray that we are living like that. That our lives demonstrate that You're God and You're good. And that we believe Your promises and we claim them. Lord God, I pray that you would help us with this. I know that probably every one of us in this room struggle at different times with these truths. But, oh Lord, You're just inviting us into blessing. You're just inviting us into blessing. You're just saying, hey, believe me and come and give. Be a radical giver. Be bullish on what I'm doing. Lord, help us. Help us to have that spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.